welcome to series four, episode number five of Mav Geeks, a military aircraft obsession. My name is Ginny Carlin. And I'm Jamie Gordon. I reckon we're about halfway through this series almost. I know, I know. Time is absolutely flying, but we've got such a special episode this week. I mean, they're all special, don't get me wrong. Uh, but this one is uh, it's a bit of a doozy, isn't it? I'm still coming to terms with how we actually managed to do this. I mean, <laughs> I, admittedly, I didn't have much to do with the interview, but um, pra- praise to Sean for setting it up and, and absolutely nailing it and, and making sure that this chap could turn up and uh, have a chat with you. And um, I have had a sneak peek, and it's a fascinating interview. Brilliant. Well, we'll get on to him in in a second. But first of all, Jamie, I was going to say, the episode last week with squadron leader Brian Withers uh, on the Shackleton, absolutely brilliant. Loved every second of it. But last week, I forgot to mention to you a bit of a Shackleton fact. Now, you know... um, when you look on Google Earth, and if you like really zoom in on Google Earth, some people find all like, oh, what is this strange island? What is this strange building on this island? And uh, you can find aircraft and everything. Well, if you zoom in on Paphos Airport in Cyprus, there are two Shackletons at the end of the runway. Really? I did not know that. Is that a hangover from when they, they must have operated out, out of Cyprus at some point? Well, I remember being with BFBS Cyprus many, many, many years ago. And I remember uh, coming into land and seeing the Shackletons there and thinking, oh, my gosh, there's some Shackletons there. And, you know, being quite interested in it. But I was reading up on it when I saw them last and uh, the company that own the airport have decided to keep them, so they've moved them to the end of the runway because they kind of see their uh, their heritage and, and their significance with aviation and stuff. So it looks like they're safe, and in that climate as well in Cyprus being absolutely conducive to keeping aircraft pristine, then it looks like they should be okay. Nice to know that they're being preserved somewhere nice and hot and sunny. So without further ado... Let us move on to the man of the hour. I cannot believe this. Shawnee Sean, our producer, did an absolute blinder and managed to get hold of Tim Peake, who is just about to release a new book. And we got to chat to him. Oh, my gosh, Jamie. I I smiled the whole day. I cannot even tell you what a nice bloke Tim Peake is. I'm not surprised that you were smiling all day. It's a fantastic get. Although I, as well as Sean has done to get him, am I right in thinking there was some surreptitious recording going on with this interview at the beginning? Yes. <laughs> so as you know, when we record, there comes a big a big countdown on the screen. Well, when we started recording, the countdown came up sort of five, you know, down to zero. And I said to Tim Peake, Tim, you must be really used to this. Uh, and this is what I said. <laughs> it's the one thing we don't get before a launch is a countdown. Oh, really? No, I know. It's so disappointing. So that's all just for, like, for the movies and stuff? It is, yeah. Well, Oh, gosh, blimey. It's also for the crowds outside watching. They'll get a countdown. But no, inside the rocket, we're just looking at the engines, the pressures, the temperatures, the start-up. Um, so that's what gives us the indication of when we're actually going to launch. It's not a, it's not a big five, four, three, two, one, which is quite disappointing. It's what you'd expect, isn't it, when you're sat on top oh, of a rocket? Oh my gosh, and I, I, I would never even have considered that at all. But uh, this, you see, Tim, this is why we've got you here. You're the expert. You know all these little space wrinkles and uh, and bits and pieces. It's so so good to have you on Mav Geeks. In fact, so good that we've renamed it Mav Peaks for this episode. <laughs> and uh, and just to. Say, 
just to say, Tim, I've, I've got to do it. I'm so sorry. I've got to fangirl you just, just for a few moments uh, and say on behalf of my family, my friends and everybody at BFBS, what an absolute honour it is to speak to you today. And even my mum uh, said to me, oh, you're speaking to Tim Peake. Tell him I used to wave at him when he went over Chesterfield. So I know you knew that you were going over Chesterfield in the International Space Station. But she was, uh, you know, she's your biggest fan as well. But but let's get on and let's get some questions in. Tim, you're now officially a retired astronaut. Um, but you've not taken up bowls. You're not on the Werther's original. You've not got yourself an allotment you're, you're a space ambassador. What what does that actually entail? Because that sounds like the coolest job in the world, apart from astronaut, of course. Yeah. So, well, first things first, I should say I'm, I'm not a retired astronaut. I, I oh. the word retired, I think, has crept in from the press. But I I, I stepped I stepped down from ESA, the European Space Agency, where I was working full time as uh, one of their active astronauts. And I've, I've stepped down from that. I still work for ESA as an ambassador for Spaceflight, doing education, outreach and things. Um, but, you know, I keep myself open to opportunities. I haven't hung up the astronaut boots just yet. So if there is a, a potential mission that may come along in the future, then, uh, you know, you might, you might see me jumping for it. But no, life is very busy. Um, with the education programme, I work with the UK Space Agency as well. There's a lot happening right now in the UK space sector. We're looking at launching from Scotland next year. So I'm also uh, advising some space companies who are trying to do, to do that. Uh, I'm advising the government in terms of science and space as well um, uh, as a non-executive director. So got my sort of fingers in lots of different pies, keeping myself very, very busy, uh, but enjoying all of it. Apologies, Tim. I think we've, we've retired you too early and I think the press has retired you too early, but it's so good to hear that uh, you're completely open, <laughs> open to going back to space. I absolutely love that. Now, You've been kept busy writing. You've done a number of books and the new book, Space, the Human Story, is out very, very soon. It's all about the side of astronauts that we sometimes don't fully see as civilians. How much did you enjoy writing it? I loved writing it. Um, I had a huge amount of fun researching all the different stories. The biggest challenge was what not to put in the book because there is just so much from, although we've only been flying into space since in 1961, Yuri Gagarin, but there's an awful lot that's happened there. So we had a lot of fun with it, and uh, I had a great team of, of researchers, and, uh, and we looked at how to structure the book as well, and I didn't want it to be this chronological history of human spaceflight. I wanted to have more fun than that, I wanted to be more colourful, really tell the human story, um, and the humour involved mm -hmm. in it as well. So we, we restructured the book uh, to follow a kind of mission profile, um, you know, get, getting the application process, the selection process, the training, having your mission, having a spacewalk, the return to Earth. And so the book follows a really interesting kind of chapter format. And that allowed us to have this freedom to just interject stories from all different eras. So at one minute, you might be you know, on the spacewalk chapter, and it could be um, you know, the Hubble repair mission, or it could be Bruce McCandless's first untethered spacewalk, uh, or it then could be Leonov doing his incredible first spacewalk too. So um, it jumps around a bit, and I think that keeps it interesting. And who, who were the biggest characters for you for the, in that book? Oh, there are all sorts of big characters. I mean, an astronaut I didn't get to meet who I would have loved to have met was Pete Conrad. And I just think he must have had the most hilarious sense of humour. Uh, he actually didn't make it on his first selection because 
he was handed a blank sheet of white paper by the psychologist and asked, what does this represent to you? And he stared at this sheet of paper for a long time. And then he handed it back and he said, it's upside down. <laughs> he got labelled as... He got labelled as unsuitable for space flight, and he failed that selection process. And it was Al Shepard who persuaded him to reapply the next year when he was selected, and he ended up being the third person to walk on the surface of the moon. So clearly, he was suitable for space flight, but just not in that psychologist's size. But no, Pete Conrad seemed somebody who was very, very colourful and had a, a wicked sense of humour. And I'd love to have met him. Am I right in thinking that Pete Conrad? passed away from a motorbike accident. That's right. Yes, he did. And um, in the uh, Johnson Space Centre at Houston, there's a, an arboretum there where in the front area where there's a tree planted for every astronaut who's, who's passed away. And at uh, Christmas time there, they put the lights on and all the trees have uh, white lights um, around them and they're beautifully lit up. But Pete Conrad's is not white. He's got coloured lights around his tree uh, because he had a motto in life that was, if you can't be good, be colourful. And, so, uh, and so they decided to have his tree as the colourful tree. I love that. that that's just beautiful, isn't it? Who, who do you think surprised you the most? I mean, we, we, you know, Pete Conrad, huge character, but who of the astronauts that you spoke to or, or learnt about were you most surprised at? Um, gosh, surprise. That's, that's an interesting one um, because there are so many different people with different characteristics and different skill sets. Um, one person I didn't know about much was uh, Svet Svetlana Svitskaya. And um, Svetlana Svitskaya was the second woman, woman in space. She was a Soviet cosmonaut. And, um, uh, and she actually flew, it was almost 20 years after Valentina Tereshkova, um, but still only the second woman in space. But what was remarkable is she had to do a spacewalk on her first mission. Gosh. And they wanted to investigate how, how you could use certain tools outside on a spacewalk. And she had to do soldering and arc welding outside and cutting things with hacksaws. I mean, a spacewalk is dangerous enough, but a spacewalk with welding equipment and soldering equipment and hacking saws, all you need is a six millimeter hole in your spacesuit and it's game over. Your suit cannot keep enough pressure in there to keep you alive. And the thought of doing those kind of activities out on a spacewalk just is unbelievable. So I think that she must have been quite a remarkable character to have been outside on her first spacewalk <laughs> doing some, a, bit, a spot of welding and soldering. Oh, my gosh. They are definitely transferable skills, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> I know you're pretty good with the DIY around the house when you get back. <laughs> now, Tim, out of all the space programs, the Gemini program, Mercury, Apollo, the space shuttle, um, the International Space Station, which one, apart from your own, do you wish that you'd been part of? Uh, am, I, am I allowed to name one in the future? The Artemis Back to the Moon. <laughs> Of course, yeah. Um, I mean, which one? I, I think for me, um, they're, they're all remarkable missions. I think some of the Hubble repair missions were incredible. I, I've spoken to um, a few astronauts who were part of those missions, um, and they were incredible missions. But 
I have to say that uh, something that really inspires me is is going to be watching humans once again walking on the surface of the moon in the next few years. And um, I, I'm delighted to be kind of still part of the program and still helping towards those missions. But I'd be even more delighted if I was one of the astronauts sitting on top of that rocket going to the moon. Oh, my gosh. Tim, what can we do to get you there? And can we have the exclusive for Mav Geeks? <laughs> Brilliant. So we celebrated World Space Week a few weeks ago. What do you think are the most exciting things happening with the UK's space programme at the moment? Well, we really are at the cutting edge of some new technologies uh, and we've got some really innovative companies who are developing things, looking at the future of what we can do in space, like in-orbit manufacturing. And this is going to become a big deal. It may not seem like it at the moment, but we are going to be building things in space. Um, the cost of access to space is coming down remarkably. It, it used to be $57,000 per kilogram on the space shuttle. And Elon Musk has already brought that down to $1,500 per kilogram on a Falcon Heavy. And when Starship works, it could be as low as $100 a kilogram. So this is a massive, massive reduction in the cost of getting stuff to space. And with a vehicle that can carry 150 tonnes to low Earth orbit on one rocket launch, suddenly things like manufacturing massive solar farms in space and microwaving that energy down to, to Earth as clean, limitless energy, they, that becomes a reality. And in the UK, we're really looking ahead at, at some of these techniques. And so we've got companies that are looking at um, carbon fibre manufacturing techniques that could be used in low Earth orbit. We've got companies looking at um, debris removal as well, clearing up space, um, which is really important to do. Uh, On-orbit maintenance. If you've put an expensive satellite into orbit, the last thing you want to do is to just have to you know, uh, decommission it if it breaks. So much better to be able to go and service that satellite. And so we're, we've got companies who are looking at doing on-orbit maintenance techniques, as well as doing launching small satellites up in Scotland. And we're the world's second biggest producer, manufacturer of small satellites. So um, we've got a booming space industry and we're really well placed, I think, for, for what's coming in the future. Now, Tim, when you look back to your time on the International Space Station, I, I mean, I imagine some of it just sticks out, some of it must be a blur. What are the things for you that you remember the most about your time? Uh, well, the one thing that I always kind of um, reflect on is the spacewalk. Um, there, there's something very, very special about leaving the sanctuary of your space station and dropping down out of that hatch and just seeing Earth 400 kilometres beneath you and, uh, and floating there uh, in, in the vast abyss of space. And I think that will never leave me. It's something that I'll probably never fully process either. And I don't think many astronauts do. I remember mm -hmm. speaking to Al Warden, who um, I became good friends with. And Al Warden was the um, uh, command uh, module pilot for Apollo 15. And he had to do a remarkable spacewalk on the way back from the moon, where they had to retrieve the film canisters from the lunar landing module before re-entering Earth's atmosphere. And they did this spacewalk about halfway back. And of course, if you're halfway back from the moon, the moon is tiny, Earth is tiny, and he was just out there in the depths of space. 
Uh, and he had a few minutes because there were some problems with the film canister and, and Houston just kind of told him just to wait a little bit. And so he was there, uh, you know, sort of not even strapped very securely to this spacecraft uh, in, in outer space and uh, and just having a look around and, and found it the most remarkable thing. So I think spacewalking, any astronaut would tell you, is probably the, the one thing that you always reflect on. And you said a little earlier about the six millimetre tear and it's kind of game over. That, that must be preying on your mind a little bit when you're outside the capsule doing the spacewalk. Yeah, you just have to be very careful. And I think that's why, I mean, spacewalking is actually really physically demanding and mentally demanding. It doesn't look like it's physically demanding because it looks very graceful. Um, you know, Hollywood always show you in slow motion in space. Of course, we're not in slow motion at all. We, we work <laughs> at a normal speed. Um, but it always looks very graceful and very easy. The reality is when you're working inside a pressurised suit, it's just horrendously difficult and, and you're expending vast amount of energy just every time you bend your fingers to try and clip something or unclip it or operate a tool. Um, and so very, very physically demanding. But at the same point, it's, it's that mental focus that you need. It's a, a, because if you do make a mistake and if you do tear your glove, it, it can be something that that simple just means that that's the end of, of your life, you know, not just the end of the spacewalk. And there's lots of um, sharp elements outside the space station. It's been peppered over the years by small micrometeorites. And these micrometeorites might have hit the handrails. And it's like a small 2-2 bullet going into a handrail. So you get these little aluminium shards of metal. So you have to be careful not to just slide your hand across a handrail without looking first to see if it's if it's clean and there's not a sharp bit of metal you're going to cut your glove on. Dear me. <laughs> Gosh, my heart's going for you even thinking about it, Tim. Dear. Going back to the book for a second, you've talked about some of the characters, but who are your and before you even wrote the, this latest book, who were your space idols? I mean, I, I do think I, I probably this is where the te the test pilot kind of comes out in me because, you know, my, my first passion in life was aviation and I, I wanted desperately to become a pilot from a, a young teenager. I was very fortunate to be able to pass the medicals and, and join the Army Air Corps as a, a helicopter pilot and then become a test pilot. So really my idols when I was looking at, at what happens in space, it was those characters like Bruce McCandless who did this first untethered uh, spacewalk. Um, from the the the, the space uh, the Challenger uh, space shuttle, and you, just to be able to do that, to have so much trust in your equipment, to go out a few hundred meters away with this jetpack on. I mean, the the potential for uh, something to go wrong there was absolutely huge, and the level of isolation and remoteness that Bruce must have felt was incredible. So that was what I would definitely call a high-risk uh, flight trial, a high-risk test program. And so a huge amount of respect to him. And also Neil Armstrong, because I know everybody would say, okay, Neil Armstrong, first first person on the surface of the moon. But there was so much more to, to Neil Armstrong's capabilities and his talents. His talent as a test pilot were phenomenal. And that really saved his life and saved the program on a couple of occasions. There was one time where he was flying this, um, the flying bel uh, bedstead or the belching spider, as they used to call it. It was this um, rigged up uh, rocket uh, helicopter type system that they were practiced lunar landings on and and uh, it was notoriously difficult to fly and um, it, it had about three crashes where astronauts had to eject and Neil was one of those and and he made that decision with about in, in about two-fifths of a second before it would have actually fully overturned and, and killed him had he ejected 
Um, and his just, I think his, his, his calmness and his presence of mind is incredible. And Gemini 8 as well, he saved the, the crew when uh, they got into an uncontrollable spin. And just because he knew that spacecraft so meticulously, he was able to isolate one set of thrusters and bring a second set of thrusters online, stabilize the Gemini capsule and bring the, him and his crewmate back successfully. I don't think many astronauts in the programme would have been able to do what Neil Armstrong did. Wow. It's funny, actually, you're talking about um, aviation and, and army flying, because I was just about to ask you, how much do you think that your time in the Army Air Corps prepared you for going into space? Oh, I think it, it prepared me incredibly well. Uh, you know, we all do different things in life and we'll always take those experiences and we'll use them for our future endeavours. It's like I, I consider it like putting tools in the toolbox as you go through life. You, you know, you push yourself out of your comfort zone, you build resilience and, and you learn a lot about your mistakes that you make. And that's all giving you the tools that you need to, to go and do other things. And I think my time in the military, my 18 years with the Army Air Corps gave me so much experience in terms of what works and what doesn't work, the leadership skills, the communication skills, the decision-making skills, how to make good decisions, um, both when you have uh, you know, plenty of time to analyze the situation and do risk mitigation, which is what we would do before a flight trial, for example, and how to make good decisions when you don't have plenty of time and you're really under pressure and it has to be a very rapid decision that could be a life or death situation. And I think the military prepares you incredibly well for both those scenarios. Um, and also, I think we, we talk a lot about leadership, 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 but something the military also prepares you for is how to be a good follower too, because we always, whilst we might be in a leadership position, we're always reporting to somebody else above us. And I think it's really important that, that you know, you understand how to be a good follower and how to present the person above you with the information they need to help them out. And that's something we do a lot of in space. Um, you know, you have to really be a team player and you have to make the whole thing work perfectly well. And so I think the military gives you that skill set. Tim, I just want to ask you if that's okay. I'm sure you've answered these questions a million times about your time flying to the International Space Station. But the night before you're, you're blasting off to go into space, I mean, you must be thinking like, even saying you're going into space is just, <laughs> it's just mad. I, I bet, first of all, did you sleep at all the night before? And secondly, can you capture any of your emotions of actually walking out to the to the rocket to to fly to the International Space Station. Yeah, so yes, I did sleep before. I was very lucky because our launch was about five fifteen in the evening um, in from Baikonur in Kazakhstan. And that meant that all of the preparation before launch was done during that day. So we actually had a really nice wake up. It was about 7.30 in the morning. So we, we had a proper night's sleep the night before. Many crews don't get that because they might be launching at 10 in the morning or, or middle of the afternoon. So their wake up call is two or three in the morning. So had a good night's sleep. And then you go through this very carefully scheduled launch day program where everything is starts on time and stops on time. It's meticulously planned and it's very low stress. There's plenty of time for everything built into the program. Um, but there's also a lot of PR kind of elements in there. The friends and family are around, the press are there. There's a, a public blessing by a priest. There's the traditions, the signing of the doors, um, the farewell ceremony. And <clears throat> I think from that point of view, there's a lot of 
uh, adrenaline and a lot of excitement. And, uh, and, and what happens then is the three crew members get on that bus that takes them to the launch pad. And there is a complete change of atmosphere. And once you have said goodbye to everybody, once all the you know, hoopla is, is finished and the press are gone and the cameras are gone, it's just you as a crew focusing on the mission. And that's what you need to do. You need to kind of compartmentalize. Uh, and so launch day is this real dichotomy. It's the two parts of launch day. There's the very public part of launch day. And then there's the, okay, the very professional part of launch day where it's just pure focus on the mission ahead. Gosh. Wow. And Tim, I mean, you, we've spoken earlier on when I wrongly retired you. Uh, we've spoken earlier on about <laughs> the fact that you'd <laughs> that that you would love to be on the mission that that goes to the moon that walks on the moon. If that doesn't happen, and your time in the International Space Station is your time in space, how does it ever get any better than that in life? You know what I mean. I do, know, I do know what you mean, but it's not something I really dwell on. And um, in some respects, I've gone through that already. I mean, I will never have the experiences that I had as a test pilot again. And they were some of the most rewarding years of my life. I just thoroughly enjoyed every single second of it. And yet I don't feel sad or regretful about that. I kind of it can reminisce and I can reflect on it and I can use the, those experiences um, that, uh, and, and take them forward. And the same will be for spaceflight. If I don't get the chance to go back to space again, then I can always look back on that experience and, and learn the lessons that I learned and use that for future projects. And, and, um, and so I'm not somebody who kind of feels like, oh, you know, life will never live up to that again. Um, I tend to be quite a positive, optimistic person. And I think, you know, leave yourself open to opportunities. Who knows what's coming around the corner? Who knows uh, what, what you might end up doing? And, uh, and it will be different. It might not be the same as, as a spacewalk. It might not be the same as a rocket launch. Um, but then flying to space wasn't the same as, as being a test pilot. And, and so you just move with the times, I think, and keep yourself open for opportunities. Bless you, Tim. Well, I honestly... I really, really hope and pray that you you get to the moon. Can't think of a better person. I, I think um, I was everywhere in the press refers to you as the our beloved astronaut, and you absolutely are because everybody feels like they know you um, because of your time on the ISS and what an ambassador you are. So thank you so much for joining us today. And please, if you do get to the moon, please, please, can we speak again? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Ginny. It's been lovely talking to you today. And, and absolutely, I promise you that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Ginny. Oh, Ginny, can I just compliment you on that interview? I mean, A, I think you got the best out of him. B, he was, seemed to be really up for it. And you two get on like a house on fire. Seriously, Jamie, he is my new bestie. He, what an absolutely lovely bloke, so humble as well. Um, and just the thought of speaking to somebody who has actually been into space. And I, I was looking at, he's a couple of years older than me. And I was thinking, you've just just done so much. You know, test pilot, uh, then being on the International Space Station. Is there anything he cannot do? And when he was talking about wanting to go uh, back to the moon, I was just like, "What do we start a petition or something? Let us start this now, Jamie. Let us get him there. Because, as I said, I cannot think of anybody better, uh, a, a better ambassador from the UK to be walking on the moon. And lastly, my little fact on this, I love it that 
they've called the next moon mission Artemis because, I'm sure you probably know this, but Artemis was the twin sister of Apollo. So it, it's all sort of worked out particularly well. I, I really like that. And uh, I just love Tim Peake. What an absolute superstar. A rock star, but somebody so humble, like I say. I love him! And that's all there is to it. Well, I tell you what, I'll uh, I'll chat up my uh, newfound mate, the CEO of the UK Space Agency, who we spoke to a couple of weeks ago, and see if I can put in a good word for him. So you have been listening to Season 4, Episode 5 of Mav Peaks. Yes, that's what we're calling it this week. Thank you so much for joining us. And if you enjoyed the episode, please, 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 please go to where you normally get your podcasts and please leave us a review. We'd love a good review. It just means that we can carry on doing this because we love it so much. And also, if you want to get in touch with us, tell us about your anecdotes, any comments about the programme, then please do email us at mavgeeks at bfbs.com. So we've been Mav Peaking this week. Next week, we are Mav Shrieking as we have a little look at what's happening in the aviation world over Halloween. Uh, We'll catch you next week. Cheers. Cheers.